0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown The Podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
1: Hello, hello, welcome in. Yeah, it is Downtown The Podcast, episode number 149. Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Coming up on this week's edition of the podcast, that we'll talk with a Hollywood legend. And then we'll talk about some, some women who should be legends, but maybe have been overlooked for their contribution to the television industry. Later on, author Jennifer Cation Armstrong will talk about her new book, When Women Invented Television. First up, though, guy's had quite a career. Appeared in his first film in 1947 danced with Marilyn Monroe in gentlemen Prefer Blondes, was with Ethel Merman, and there's no business like show business, Rosemary Clooney and others in White Christmas, and then won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 1962 for his role as Bernardo in West Side Story. It also earned him a Golden Globe. We're talking about George Chakiris, who's had quite a career as an actor, dancer, singer, and in recent years, making his own incredibly beautiful jewelry for the George Chikiris collection. He's got a new memoir out called My West Side Story, our conversation with George Chikiris. George, thanks for being with us. We want to know, uh, what is it that made you decide now was the right time to write this memoir? Well, you know, I have a, a really
0: good friend of mine who wrote the book with me, Harrison. Uh, uh, we were chatting over lunch or something, and we started talking about this, and so it, she brought it to my attention. And Lindsay has done books with other people, Tippy Hedren and so on. I know Tippy; it's a great book. But that's how it it came about. And then I think it was Lindsay who was there, connected with the publisher, and long well, story short, the publishers who decided on the title for the book, which Lindsay and I were both very happy about. And that's kind of how it all happened.
1: Could you have imagined all those years ago, as the son of Greek immigrants? Uh, What happened to you back in 2011 when you had your hand and footprints immortalized outside of uh, the former Grauman's Chinese Theater?
0: Well, I'll tell you, no, never in a million years. You know, when I uh, first started uh, studying dance at the American School of Dance on Hollywood Boulevard, I had a scholarship and I had to clean the studios at night and the mirrors and the floors and all of that Mm -hmm. by myself. And I would walk home every night. Too. I was renting a room on Hollywood Boulevard, and I would pass Gorman's Chinese Theater every night. It was always quiet, no tourists at that time. And it was, it was so uh, to answer your question, in, in a million years, I don't think any of us even it never it didn't even cross our minds <laughs> that, 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 that things would happen as they as they did, and which were kind of especially getting to share that with Russ and Rita was
1: was great. Now, you were a veteran of a number of films uh, for more than a decade before West Side Story. Was that Song of Love? Was that your first film? Well,
0: yeah. But, well, I, I, uh, it sounds a bit sort of uh, grand. It was my first film because I was was a, a chorus boy in a choir at a church in uh, in Long Beach. And the choir very often sang for movies. And they sang for this particular movie called Song of Love with Catherine Hebron, uh, Paul Henry and Robert Walker and because we were in that musical sequence the choir the boys choir we were actually in physically in the sequence so of course, of course we were at MGM studios and we were on that beautiful wonderful uh, MGM theater set so there was a full orchestra on the stage and all of that then we were in in the back way happened set in in the back of the set but we were part of the sequence so for me to say that was my first movie <laughs> sounds a little bit grand because I was just a kid
1: in the choir, you know. <laughs> we're talking with George Chakiris here on Downtown. Uh, and gentlemen, prefer blondes. You were one of the dancers uh, in Marilyn Monroe's number, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. You also were yeah. uh, in No Business Like Show Business and, and White Christmas. And, and and am I right yeah. that it was um, it was a picture of you with Rosemary Clooney from White Christmas that really opened some doors for you as an actor?
0: Yeah, it, it was. Um, uh, uh, at that time, uh, there was a Sprint in Life magazine on White Christmas, to double page spread, color spread. And in the lower left hem, uh, there was a picture of Rosie with the four guys around her. It wasn't just me, it was me and three of my fellow dancers who were, uh, uh, but be- because there were just four of us, People could see us, and uh, uh, g- girls cut out that picture from Life magazine. And <laughs> I started getting fan mail, and nobody knew who I was, of course. Um, but based on that and uh, the fan letters that I was getting, and people figured out it was me, the, uh, uh, the producer of White Christmas thought that, uh, that the students should test me, and they did. And uh, so uh, I, I was under contract with Paramount for a while as well because of that.
1: But it, but it wasn't going the way you hoped, and eventually you, you moved back to New York, and it was there that you auditioned for Jerome Robbins, and people may not know, you ended up uh, in the London, the West End production of West Side Story, but playing riff. Uh, yeah, that's right.
0: You know, it, 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 it's so funny how things happen. Um, well, I, I did go uh, to New York in, in 1958 because there was uh, work for dancers in here in, in Los Angeles was kind of drying up. So uh, that seemed to be the logical move to sort of make um, and uh, I and I had friends who were uh, took me off on the uh, couch in their living on that a place to stay and they also knew everything that was going on in New York and they were the ones who alerted me to the fact that Westside was just coming up to its one year anniversary in the theater in New York and also they were forming a, a London company uh, auditioning people so. I uh, I first read for Jerome Robbins for the role of Bernardo for that for that for the London company, and uh, after I read for Bernardo, he then asked me to look at the role of Riff, and I did that. And then he uh, Riff in the in the theater production sings cool, uh, so they I, I had to learn cool and go back and audition for Jerry again. So I auditioned I auditioned three different times: uh, uh, as Bernardo and then as Riff. And then um, on my birthday, September 16, 1958, Ruth Mitchell, who was the stage manager for West Side Story at the Theater, at the Winter Garden Theater in New York, called and told me that I, I, they were casting me as as Riff in the London Company. And that same day, I had seven checks for my California unemployment, $35 <laughs> each. So, so it, was, it was a great
1: day. That's a, a memorable 24th birthday
0: uh yes exactly it really was memorable i, I remember it like it just happened you
1: know yes <laughs> well it was such an amazing collection of talent and west side story uh the creative team from uh from uh, leonard bernstein arthur uh, lawrence uh, jerome robbins robert wise and then uh the incredible cast now i understand though that uh, and, and you you thought the world of natalie wood but initially at least she did not want uh, richard beamer in the role of tony well
0: you know uh uh, I, I, I heard all kinds of things. Just that I, I never kn- knew anything, factually But uh, the word was uh, out that uh, Natalie wanted either Warren Beatty or or, uh, or her husband to to play that role, and um, she kind of tried to make that happen. Of course, it didn't happen. Um, and uh, but I, from what I heard, just like you're hearing it too, uh, I, I. I I don't have a fact uh, to help me but i we all understood because we heard it so often that she did she did want uh, uh Robert Wagner or Warren Beatty for that role rather than richard beamer but of course that didn't happen and, and richard uh estate
1: was there uh your dear friend Rita Moreno has talked about how the film broke so many rules and, and it's incredible uh, 60 years later to look back at it it, it still just uh, sparkles it's so original and, and no one has been able to copy it since even as she has pointed out even down to the costumes that the members of the gangs were wearing
0: well you know um, i the, the costume designer for, for west side story and for a lot of other beautiful uh, stage production and movies was irene sheriff uh, irene sheriff always uh, designed every, whatever she did but uh, specifically for Miss story she designed for character and um, I one of the things I remember in terms of what I wore in in, in the film uh, one day I was walking down the street to the sound stage to get ready for work and I was wearing the, the black suit with that that purple shirt and uh, that day walking to the set with uh, with that it suddenly hit me uh, how wonderful that suit and that the color of that shirt felt and it really helped me to be bernardo and that's what irene sheriff did with costume. she she designed for character and helped everybody uh, and that's very important for anybody in any movie role or any stage role uh, what you wear is is, is very important but uh, again irene sheriff designed everything for character and uh, so Everything looked the way it was supposed to look and still be interesting.
1: Now, I understand that the production team wasn't completely sure about shooting on location, but is it true that the first thing, scene that you shot was the one that convinced them this was the way to go? Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs>
0: from, from what I understand, you know, the the, uh, the prologue in, in the theater uh because uh, I did the prologue in, uh, as written in the London Company, but the, 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 the prologue in the theater version, uh stage by Jerry Robbins is really very beautiful. And my understanding was that Jerry really wanted to to do the opening of the film that same way. And I guess it was Robert Wise who uh, talked him into doing doing what they ultimately did, the, the location work in, in New York. Um, and once Jerry saw that, he absolutely agreed that that was the way to go. And so that's what happened. And it, 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 that, the prologue uh, on location in, in New York is is such a beautiful way to start the, the film of West Side Story because you're really on the streets and it's real. And uh, the, a theater set would have been different. Being on the street and on those real locations was a beautiful way to start
1: that film. Now, uh, Russ Tamblyn had had a... Quite a career as a child actor and a young actor before this, but hadn't done a lot of dance. I understand he had done he had done more tumbling, more gymnastics work. And so, uh, did you help him out at all with that? And did they did they uh, revise some of the choreography to uh, work with the skills that he brought to the table? Well,
0: they they absolutely did revise some of it in, in the, the dance at the gym. And it's so wonderful. Uh, 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 Russ gets to do some gymnastic moves in the dance of the gym, and it really uh, heightened the competition between the, the two sides, between the two gangs. The, and, and uh, yeah, they absolutely made use of, of Russ's uh, 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 gymnastic ability, and uh, it, it also it helped him. It just was better for the movie, but ultimately wonderful him as, as Riff as well. Russ is such a great guy. And, you know, in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the same thing. They all have to to do gymnastic uh, things. Yeah. But Russ Russ could do that (laughs) in his sleep. He was so good
1: at it. So, obviously, you knew the success the show had had on Broadway uh, and in London. So, you had a pretty good idea this would be a hit. But could you have imagined that it would have legs like this, that 60 years later we would still be talking about West side story. And, and what do you think is the secret to that magic?
0: Well, I, I you know, first of all, no one ever imagined that no one, uh, certainly never even cost anybody's mind. But I think the quote unquote magic is, it's the beauty of the story, you know, based on the, uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, uh, and, uh, the, uh, uh, it's and it's about you know between the two gangs and it's it's it, there's prejudice and 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 prejudice has always been with us and still is and so so I think people when they see that and, and they feel that for the characters in the piece they we can all uh, associate with it we can understand that and I think one I think that's one of the aspects that keeps that story uh, alive and 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 we as an audience can feel it.
1: Well, you went on after West Side Story to do a a number of more films. Uh, You worked as a recording artist for a while, um, did a lot of TV work. I still uh, have very vivid memories of a a couple of television performances, one being uh, a role that was very different for you, along with Chad Everett on on Medical Center. Oh,
0: God. Uh, Yeah, I I, I got to do three episodes of Medical Center. It was a great show. And Frank Flixman, who was the producer of that show, was really nice to me and also one of the beauties of one of those episodes uh, uh was directed by vincent sherman vincent sherman was a, a huge movie director at warner brothers and did some of the great stuff with betty davis so the beauty of of, uh, of medical center and some episodic television as well that you got to work with people like vincent sherman who also moved into television as well. So it was a, 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 a you, you got to make, work with some extraordinary people.
1: And I also have a very fond memories, and I, I think it must've been around 1967 or 68, a wonderful television version of Kismet with Jose Ferrer, uh, Anna Maria Alberghetti, uh, and Barbara Eden. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I, tell
0: you, I I loved Kismet. And the fact that I got to sing with Anna Maria, I got, we got to sing Stranger is, Stranger in Paradise. Uh, uh, That show was uh, done in color, of course. I've never gotten to see it in color, um, but uh, uh, it was a great experience. It was—it's a a beautiful show. Anna Maria was incredible to work with, and Bob Mackie did great costumes. And Barbara Eden was so beautiful and so wonderful as uh, in that show as well. But uh, again, great people. Uh, uh, Jose Ferrer, Barbara, and Anna Maria Albergetti, and, and Hans Conried. So mm-hmm. it, it was a serendipitous kind of piece of work because, they, again, you were with such wonderful people.
1: Now, was it your friendship with Shirley Jones that led to you appearing in the final episode of The Partridge Family? Well, it wasn't because of my friendship. I, I mean, I had a friendship with Shirley
0: for, uh, for before that, um, we had the same uh, representation uh, a, a long time ago, and that's how I first met Shirley and Jack Cassidy, her husband. I knew the boys when they were really six months old, really kids. Um, so I've known Shirley for a, a long time, and she's, you know, I, I sound like a broken record. I'm always talking about how nice people are. It sounds kind of boring to say that, but it's true. Shirley is another one of those really great people. You know, we were managed by a woman called Ruth Aaron, and Ruth, of Ruth. One of the ways that Ruth, uh, in talking about Shirley, she said she she's Miss Wagon Train. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I, I always I always love that description because Shirley she uh, her strength is being able to uh, take uh, de- deal with whatever is going on in her life in, in, a, in a rational, comfortable, easy way. You know, she's again. I thought Miss Wagon Train, was a great way to describe her one way. But again, she's just she's she's
1: she's such a lovely person she's just great well and we mentioned your friendship with rita moreno we love her work on uh, on one day at yeah. a time that still should be on there but i i want to know if uh if you two are sharing the same secret because i've seen some recent interviews and pictures of you sir and both you and rita look absolutely terrific
0: Oh well, God, thank you for that. I, hey, I, I agree with you, Sheila. She really does. Uh, I'm not, I don't know about me. I'm not objective about that. But I appreciate your saying that. You know, I I think uh, uh, dancers, people who have have a, a mm. strong dancing background, and most dancers that I know, in, in uh, we we all keep in touch with the dancers from the West I So we're we're like a family. So we all see each other whenever we can. But dancers in general, I think. I think it's a frame of mind. They're they're young in spirits, kind of a way, um, and and they also have a great sense of humor. And I think those things help you feel the way you feel, and maybe in some way uh, your appearance as well. But I, I, get most dancers uh, that I've known over the years, and uh, I, 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 I I'm, listen to me stuttering here like a fool. <laughs> um, look, are, are just physically and mentally and in their hearts, kind of young people,
1: you know. Now, what led to you designing jewelry and, and what has become a, a fabulous a, a collection, the George Chakiris collection? I've looked at a lot of it on, on the website at com, and it's really beautiful jewelry. God,
0: thank you so much. You know, that that started as a, a hobby a, a long time ago, 20 years I've lost track of time. Um, and I, I, I just i fell in love with, with uh, creating something making something be having an artistic outlet so to speak uh, aside from a show business um and i, I really appreciate what you said about my, my collection of uh, i've made every piece in the collection is something i have made physically myself and once we have a piece uh, that we we like we can then make a mold and, and, and make more pieces but um so Again, as far as a hobby, and I got familiar with the jewelry district downtown Los Angeles, and, and then, I uh, uh, serendipitously, I, I met a, a distributor from, from Japan, and he's, he's been distributing my things in Japan ever since at a great department store. God, the department stores in Japan are just amazing. but I So I've been selling jewelry uh, in Japan uh, and uh, here in the States uh, on our website. So it's yeah, and I've really, one of the beautiful things about, about making jewelry is once you've gone through the process of creating it physically, uh, whether you do it by, with a, a mold or wax or however you create the piece, once the piece is created, one of the beauties of it to me is, is I can hold it in my hand. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can hold it. And there's something really gratifying about that.
1: The website is com. George's book is out now, My West Side Story, and some wonderful stories and memories from a remarkable career and a remarkable life as well. Uh, George, we appreciate you making time for us this afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us, and we wish you a continued good health and success. Thank
0: you so much i really appreciate it talk to you thank you for really nice questions and I, I wish you all
1: the best as well man oh man the story's there we could have gone on and on with uh, george Chakiris. it's you know in in the moment you're just having conversation with with a very nice man but then you step back and think this is a guy who did two movies with marilyn monroe <laughs> yeah <you> know, <laughs> who worked with you know natalie wood and then as we talked about rita moreno and there's so many legends along the way and he's one himself absolutely and it it, man still so sharp 60 years after that movie came out and the recollections he has of working with those (laughs) absolute icons yeah uh it's always great to hear those types of stories that was a lot of fun and i don't think george us saying he's 86 years old and i Mm. wouldn't lie to the man he looks great and sounds obviously great, too. And But I think he's right about dancers. The dancers seem to have that. Once you are a dancer, you're a dancer for life. Mm. And there's a lot to be said about that type of movement
0: yeah. for keeping you healthy, both physically and mentally.
1: Well, that was fun stuff. George Chikiris here on downtown. When we return after this word from Cross Insurance... We'll look back at four women who were instrumental in shaping the television industry. Author Jennifer Cation Armstrong, up next on Downtown. Since its founding
0: in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We're proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant.
1: Uh, no, we're not going to be... Uh talking about reruns of the golden girls but we'll talk about one of the golden girls you think you know the betty white story but you may not know the whole story that she was one of the pioneers of the television industry being one of the first women to have complete control creative control over her own television show and betty white is one of four women profiled in a terrific new book from Jennifer Cation Armstrong, now, Jennifer has uh, been with us many times. She wrote the book Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted about the making of the Mary Tyler Moore show, Sex in the City and Us, and Seinfeldia on the continuing allure and attraction of Seinfeld. Her new book is entitled When Women Invented Television, and it's a look at four remarkable women who were there at the beginning of the TV industry. Here's Jennifer Cation Armstrong on downtown. Jennifer, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for
2: having
1: me. Well, you have written uh, so much and so well about uh, television and and some pretty important women in the industry. But uh, how fun was it for you to go back and and research and learn even more about these women who were there really at the genesis of the industry?
2: It was so much fun because, you know, I, I was not alive yet in 1948. 1955 and so and it was a crazy time in television i mean just that alone you know leaving these women aside just seeing the way television worked then i mean anything was possible every you know it was just like people were trying anything everything was live it's just such a wacky time to be looking back on
1: and it was a time of transition too and so many of the people who would be the first stars of television had transitioned over from radio. And then some of the women you wrote about also uh, had that experience that uh, radio was the bridge to television.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, and it makes sense, right? That that's how, you know, anytime it's like, we'll take, you know, I don't know, a YouTube star and bring them to television. It's like you, it worked for you on radio, so let's let's give it a go on television. You are you already have a following from radio. People were a little, at least a little familiar. So someone like Gertrude Berg, who is one of my main characters, you know, had a 17-year run on radio with her. What was essentially a family sitcom, The Goldbergs, and she really wanted to keep that going. And so she brilliantly sort of saw the potential in television and brought. The, the same show, you know, she had she had raised her children, her sitcom children on radio from, you know, small children to adulthood. And she was like, look, I, I have a chance to do it all over again on television. And that was that was sort of her plan. And she saw the potential right away.
1: But uh, Gertrude uh, Gertrude Berg is such a fascinating character. And uh, it, it's. Oh. I'm glad that more people through your book are going to learn about her because she's got such a remarkable story, was in a, a position of great power within in the industry and really created the template for the modern sitcom.
2: Exactly. I mean, and also, you know, women we think of now like a Tina Fey, right, who writes and produces and acts. It's like this, that's what Gertrude was doing. She created her show. She wrote most of the script herself. Um, starred in the show. She was fully in charge and even produced, you know, to the point where she really, it was like her checks that she was writing when she would pay, you know, the stars of her show. And really, like you said, that's kind of that template. If you watch the Goldbergs on television from the beginning, a lot of those hallmarks that we recognize are there. It's a family. There mostly takes place in the living room with a little in the kitchen, right? And they have these small problems sometimes with the neighbors, but they, and they get resolved in an hour and, or in a half hour. And it just really, it's very
1: familiar right away. It's interesting. We have a cable channel that we get here that carries uh, the Goldberg. So I've had a chance to see a number of episodes. And it's yeah, when you watch it, you say, well, I know that's yeah, 1949, but I know exactly what this is. But but this mm-hmm. is the show that really started it in so many ways. And even even some of the stock characters that we all have come to know.
2: Yeah, that's really true. One of my favorites uh, from that show is Uncle David, who (laughs) I really would call her sidekick, essentially, right? Because she has a husband on the show, but Uncle David can be home with her all day. She is a housewife, and, you know, he often wears an apron and is helping her in the kitchen and is kind of, you know, a little bit sort of put upon. And... um, he he talks a lot about how he's and also because it's always like all of the family and also uncle david right so he's kind of he recognizes that he is a sidekick and um really a foil for her powerful character
1: was it her success in radio that enabled her as a woman as a jewish woman to get this Mm -hmm. level of power in the early television industry
2: No doubt about that. There's no way this happens under any other circumstances. In fact, she still didn't have as much power as one might have thought. She took it to all of the networks at the time and was turned down on one whole round, you know, and then um, basically kind of marched into the office of William Paley, who was in charge of CBS, both radio and television, and said something to the effect of, look, I got you through the depression on the radio, you know. And I think you should give me a television show and kind of all but demanded that. And he eventually that was when he gave in and said, "Okay, you know what? You're right. Why not? Let's give it a chance. And, you know, she's a 50 year old Jewish woman at this point. So it is not what we think of as the 50s. You know, later, which really comes later, the 50s um, sitcom mom, right? More of like a Donna Reed, glamorous, right? Young woman. This is, you know, she really, you wouldn't even, this, even now, this, this would be kind of extraordinary
1: to see. We're talking with Jennifer Cation Armstrong about her new book, When Women Invented Television. One of the through lines in the stories of the women that you write about are the challenges that they faced uh, because of their gender, uh, sometimes because of their, Uh, their religion, and sometimes because of their political beliefs. And uh, Gertrude Berg, like so many, got pulled into what was going on with the Red Scare of the late 40s and early 50s. And and the man who played her husband on the show, Philip Loeb, uh, in many ways uh, bore the brunt of the accusations that were made to try and spare her from some of that collateral damage.
2: Yeah, it's a really sad story because she was really, the show was just incredibly popular. Philip himself was popular. You know, he was like voted something like America's favorite father by the Boy Scouts of America. You know, they were really, they were the first show that was so successful on TV. that went back to radio and it was also the first show to be made into a movie. You know, they were really kind of like going. And then he was named in this 1950 list that kind of came out. And, um, at first it was okay, but then people started other shows started kind of firing people and that gave others the idea that maybe this should happen. And so her, um, her sponsor general foods asked her to fire him and she refused at first. And this was really her show's downfall because this kept them, they ended up getting, they were supposed to come back, easily in the fall in on CBS. And instead they were kicked off the air on CBS probably, you know, CBS didn't say it was because of this, but you know, suddenly they couldn't find a time slot kind of thing. And um, they kept, you know, she kept negotiating behind the scenes to try to get the show back on the air. And it just wasn't happening. So it was off the air for a while. It eventually came back on NBC a season or two later, but you can see how that, you know, you can't just do that, especially at that time when people had to really be in front of their televisions at a specific time watching a specific channel to see their show. It's like, so, you know, it just lost complete momentum there. And they brought it back. She eventually had to fire Philip Loeb; it was the only way it was going to work. And um, she did it, she said, because she felt like, you know, she's got all of these, the rest of the, the cast and crew to worry about as well. And she kept paying Philip Loeb. She had a deal with him to kind of keep, keep him afloat. But it just, that's, I believe that this is why we do not know Gertrude's mm. name the same way we know Lucille Ball's name.
1: Yeah. And she, she made guest appearances on other shows after the Goldbergs went off the air, but she never captured that level of fame and notoriety that she had uh, in the late 40s
2: exactly exactly she was a, a regular on burl on milton burl and people loved her like every time she was on the crowd went wild and i've watched some of those ob- old episodes they're very fun and you know it's just they couldn't quite overcome the loss of the momentum like i said that they had really early on she had the right idea getting in early you know like she could have been really like her reclaimed been there in fact One of my favorite heartbreaking facts is the fact that it was actually supposed to be that the Goldbergs and I Love Lucy was going to be paired together on CBS on Mm -hmm. Monday night. So it was kind of going to be the first must-see TV lineup, you know, and in a way, this was meant to be so that the Goldbergs could give Lucy a boost. And instead, the Goldbergs got yanked off the air. Lucy ran on Mondays anyway and became an instant, you know, iconic success. So it really shows you that could have boosted Gertrude's career as well and kept it going.
1: Another one of the remarkable pioneers you write about is Erna Phillips, known as the queen of the soaps. And again, someone who pretty much invented a genre with, uh, well, with shows like The Guiding Light, As the World Turns, uh, the first real television serial, These Are My Children, Another World, and, and on and on.
2: Yeah, she is. She was really remarkable. She was a real kind of like you know. I think of her as like the Shonda Rhimes of her day. You know, it's like <laughs> she had this empire, and she she created daytime soaps originally for radio. She was asked by her boss to create something that women would like, and that's what she did. And she really built on that and brought eventually, as you said, the her big breakthrough success on television was Guiding Light, bringing it directly. Interestingly, I think from radio to television seamlessly, like they just kept the same exact stories going and brought it right along to television and had those actors on and simulcast a radio version and a TV version for a while. And, you know, that ran until recently. It's like this incredible, you know, incredible success. And she mentored so many others. Plus she really did invent this genre, everything from, The organ cues that we still kind of think of as the hallmark of soaps, even if they still don't do it. Those dramatic pauses where they all look at each other after saying something big. And even the cliffhanger was something, I mean, surely we knew about suspense before her. But, you know, she really helped to pioneer this idea of, like, the way you keep people coming back every day is to end on a note where they have to know what happens next
1: and for people who grew up uh, you know in the 80s or 90s uh, when when the daytime serials were in their decline uh, they don't I don't think they know and appreciate how important those shows were to the success of television in the early days when you didn't have syndication so local stations really had very little to air during the daytime hours unless they had someone in house who could br- produce some sort of local show so they relied on those soaps to fill up the program day
2: Yeah, daytime is funny. It's one of the sort of side notes of this entire book, particularly because, I mean, it's it's because I was writing about women and it was really considered women's realm, right? The daytime hours, because it was mostly housewives. And so I was so interested to find out about how everyone was kind of like, we don't know what to do during the day. (laughs) Um, Like, it was just this, like, big stretch of time that they were constantly flummoxed by. You know, they were just always trying to figure out, like, and, you know, of course, a lot of male execs are all going like, what do women want? We don't understand. <laughs> um, and Erna was a, was often the answer to that, even though they didn't always listen to her. She was usually right.
1: Now, a woman that I did not know much about, a fascinating story of the first black American to host her own television show. Tell us a little bit about Hazel Scott.
2: Yeah, this is another one where you just cannot believe that we don't all know her name. Right. Um my, my modern equivalent that I always give to her is I think of her as kind of the Beyonce of her time. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's an overstatement. She was this beautiful, charismatic woman who was a jazz musician and very successful from a pretty early age. She really was like a teen star even. And um, was touring the country, was on the radio. She had a couple of things she did that people really loved. Um, she could play two pianos at once on stage which is pretty extraordinary if you've ever tried to play one piano you know that (laughs) um and the other thing she really did that was huge that everyone loved um was she did she she swung the classics so like she would start out playing like a Bach song and slowly over the course of it would turn it more into like a boogie woogie as they said um really you know this was the cool thing at the time um and, you know, crowds went wild. She was touring all over the United States and even all over the world and drawing big crowds and playing at Cafe Society regularly in New York City, which was like a lefty hangout. It was the first integrated nightclub. So, and she also was married to Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was a black congressman from Harlem, right. one of the first black congressmen. A very charismatic figure in himself, very handsome, great speaker, was a preacher. And the two of them together was really just this incredible power couple. They were always in Ebony Magazine, often on the cover. You know, they, they wanted to know everything. Everybody wanted to know everything about their lives together. And so she was offered the chance to, in 1950, have a variety show on a network called Dumont, which obviously no longer exists. It ended in the late 50s, but it was a fourth network. And, um, you know, rightfully so, it it just made so much sense that she would have a television show. If you see, unfortunately, recordings of the actual show are not out there, but you can see her on YouTube just playing with a camera, you know, to the camera. And you can just see how the camera loves her. All she has to do is say something like, hello, I'm Hazel Scott. (laughs) And it's riveting. Um, And she's really expressive and fun to watch. And so she would play the piano on her show with her band. And it started as local in New York City one night a week and then went several nights a week and then went national. And so she was um, the first black person to host her own show in primetime nationally and um, was doing great, like great reviews. All the reviews and like variety and everything were saying, like, we need more of her. And she, too, ran into that same blacklist that Philip Loeb was on. She was on it as well, and things went south very quickly for her after that.
1: And finally, of someone we all know, but I'm not sure how many people know the full story of the remarkable career of Betty White, uh, one of the real pioneers of television, she was nominated for the first Emmy Award and actually ended up losing that to Gertrude Berg. But uh, she was the first woman to have full creative control of her series when she did Life with Elizabeth.
2: Yeah, and she was also on a daytime talk show, one of the first in Los Angeles, where she really became a star. And we were talking about that filling of time that they had to do on daytime. The answer in LA seemed to be put Betty White on five and a half hours a day, six days <laughs> a week, um, which still seems like a fair idea to me now. I mean, I think we'd all watch that. But, you know, yeah, she really was, like there from the beginning, I think it explains a lot about what we see, what we have seen of her extraordinary career since. Like, to me, this really explained why she's so good. Like, she had this practice of both an early sitcom that she created and starred in herself and being, you know, improv on television five and a half hours a day, six days a week for several years. Like, you're going to get pretty quick on your feet if you do that. And so she really, like, She did a lot in those early days, and I was really struck by what a smart businesswoman she was, how savvy she was. She was great at working the press. I read a lot of interviews with her from the time. Um, She knew exactly the kind of image she wanted to portray and really handled it. And, you know, she was still in her 20s at that time. It's pretty incredible.
1: When you went back and researched these women, was there a common thread connecting all of them, a, a trait that they all shared?
2: I think it was their determination because obviously in some ways it's it's a bummer. These stories are a little you know, there's not a perfect ending to a lot of this because mm-hmm. the whole point is that I'm telling you stories you don't know. But I think God, just the way they kept going is is truly incredible. And against these as these forces I felt like they were almost like you could see them amassing on the horizon. It's like as television got more profitable. Um, the men start to move in. You know, that's a large reason why women got to do so much in the early days is no one knew what to do with television and it wasn't profitable yet. But as you reach like a 1955, these forces start to really amass and it's like the men are coming in, they're going to take charge, they know what's best, and also and they, they think that women should be a certain way. So there's a lot more pressure on these women to kind of like be that perfect fifties woman that we think of now. And they don't, none of these women are that, you know, they're very modern in that way. And so between like the blacklist and just patriarchy, these women sort of start to get pushed to the margins, but they, they are just, their determination was always incredible.
1: And they weren't just opening doors for women. They were really blazing a trail for the entire industry.
2: Yeah. And I mean, they say they, they have said it, in some form over and over themselves that like, I don't, that they, and I believe them that they, they didn't have time to think about, like I am blazing a trail for women right now. Um, They were really just trying to make their way and they had this determination to do so and felt like, I mean, I will say the feminist thing about them is they, they felt like they deserved it as much as anybody, you know? And yeah, that's the thing is they, I really wanted to pick women in this case. Women did a lot of things in television, then, but I wanted to pick four women who, specifically had some kind of creative impact on what we see on television now and you know so that means not just that Gertrude was a female pioneer but she invented the sitcom you know like that's something we all still can recognize today and it's it's crazy to you you almost forget that it had to be invented but it did.
1: The book is called When Women Invented Television, the untold story of the female powerhouses who pioneered the way we watch today. Uh, The newest book from Jennifer Cation Armstrong, you can pre-order it now, officially available on the 23rd. Uh, Jennifer, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for making time for us today, and we wish you much success with the book.
2: Thank you so much.
1: That is Jennifer Cation Armstrong talking about her terrific new book, When Women Invented Television. Our thanks to Jennifer for coming back with us. And what a treat to talk with the great George Chakiris, his new memoir out now, My West Side Story. And you can visit his website and check out some of that wonderful jewelry he's designed as well at georgechakiris.com. That'll wrap it up for us this week on the program. Thanks for joining us on Downtown, the podcast for Kerry Haskell. I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown.